My Life Now is a half-hour podcast show which regularly features reviews of new releases and all-time classics of both traditionally published and self-published books. Tune in for special guest interviews and, of course, helpful tips to not only write your next book, but also to help market it. My Life Now is most often referred to as a great way for authors to get quality exposure and avid readers to discover their next read. Without further delay, here's another stimulating episode of My Life Now. Hey, good evening. Welcome back to My Life Now. I'm Michael Patterson, and tonight I'm going to be hosting once again. So I would like to welcome Trond Unheim today with us. Um, Here he is. He's published a book already on the coronavirus, and it's fantastic. And I just think... um, this this whole virus thing is so new, and here's a man who has, he's already published something. He's crushing it. So without further ado, welcome, Tron. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. I just, uh, I'm excited uh, that you're here with us today, and I'm really excited to talk about your book because, I mean, it's fascinating, and it and it's definitely super relevant right now. Yeah, I thought that, you know, when this thing started to unfold in January, I very quickly realized that this wasn't just going to go away. And especially when the WHO started, uh, or actually rather didn't call it a pandemic uh, very quickly, I realized this was going to be a a big issue. So yeah, pandemic aftermath. It's been a a big undertaking over the last few months. I wrote wrote 450 pages in, uh, in, in about two months. Wow, that's incredible. Well, I would like to, um, before we get into your book, I'd like to just have you tell us a little bit about yourself. Now, I did hear that not only are you a new author who is who is on top of it, but you're somewhat of a hero. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. But, you, you know, one story that I have is, uh, you know, a long, long time ago when I lived in Italy, I was just uh, sitting on a bus because my friend and I were on a bike trip, but we wanted to get to the south of, of, uh, of the island, uh, the island of Sicily. And at some point, you know, we were facing backwards, so we had had a view to, you know, among other things, the engine. And after sort of a longer conversation, we suddenly saw some flames and smoke coming out of that engine. And, you know, I walked forward, decided to tell the bus driver. He, however, said, you know, don't don't worry about it. We're going into a tunnel anyway. So, <laughs> and then the, the bus, you know, predictably stalled, and it became apparent to pretty much everyone that we wow. were in a burning bus in a Sicilian tunnel. Um, you know, it was quite epic, and I, I would say... It was an interesting experience. I was able to sort of commandeer everybody to get down, and you know, we all made it out of the bus. And then we had to run and trek across a, you know, like a three-mile-long tunnel. It was really quite extreme. Uh, but I'm glad we walked the right direction because otherwise we wouldn't have been here today. Wow. Um, and it's a good story. So I've been a little bit more careful talking to girls at the back of the bus after that. <laughs> well, I definitely, I definitely call that heroic. That's great. So can we talk a little bit about your educational background? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have lots of liberal arts topped up with a a PhD in science and tech studies. So I've looked at everything from sort of European philosophy to publishing to electric cars. uh, And then, you know, my PhD was on Internet and the future of work. And I've studied in four different countries uh, Norway, Belgium, Italy and, and the U.S. That's a broad scope of study. That's impressive. That's impressive. How about your professional background? I have actually worked in almost every sector you can think about. Uh, I started out, you know, running my own or building my own kind of internet incubator. Um, 
advice to self don't really you know build a startup trying to advise other people before you're out of school but that's what we <laughs> tried to do it was it was interesting um then i had a little stint in a norwegian sort of policy think tank uh followed by working for for the eu actually in government wow. um after that i worked for oracle corporation for for a few years uh, working on sort of technology strategy um and then finally the last seven years i have uh, been working at mit and then, uh, you know, on the side and of the last few years, I have had my own startup, Yegi, which is a uh, sort of a search engine of sorts. Um, and lastly, I have sort of transitioned now uh, to becoming an author and published two bo uh, books this year. One's called Disruption Games and is about startup and the value of failure. And uh, the last one is Pandemic After. Wow. Wow, you're an interesting man. Yeah, this is cool. Um, I can't imagine writing two books and then plus doing all those things that you've done. That's that's incredible. Um, I applaud you. I try. I try. Very cool. Let's um. Well, let's move on a little bit. Um, before diving into your book, though, I I did want to um just clarify some some phrases and terms. The word the term social sciences. What is that referring to? So I put that in there because you know when you write about a lot about technology and, and the future, uh, a lot of the, these people are, are kind of positioning themselves as, you know, they're, they're all about technology. And it is very true that if you're going to look into the future, you need to know something about innovation and technology. But really, I, I'm more of a sociologist than, than I am a technologist. And, and one of the benefits of that is, you know, it's really the social shaping of technology that uh, is the essential thing to focus on. So you could say it's actually the informed way to look at technology and how it impacts the world. You cannot get there if you just get too, you know, geeked out about um, you know, the devices and all the underlying <laughs> technologies. It's, you know, the uses and the social impact of, of the technology actually shapes. Absolutely. So like, I mean, you just look at like Facebook, um, these other social media platforms and kind of how they have shaped um, and, and daily shape the lives of people. Yes, exactly. And if you look at, you know, the, the tech platform that Facebook was when it was launched, the impressive part of Facebook was not its technology platform. It was the business model, I guess, and the kind of the, just the nerve to have uh, and the idea of really connecting people in that way and that we would, you know, be so interested in the minutia of each other's lives. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's countless books out there and publications just on on how it's changed the way people think and interact. I just think it's really cool that not only are you taking information about this this coronavirus, but just really diving into how people actually behave scientifically. Yeah, and I think, you know, we'll get to that. But w one of the striking things, and you know, one of the reasons I feel this book is very important is that this hasn't always been the case uh, when one looks at pandemics either. And unfortunately, you know, this ties into how governments and actually also other experts and, and, and even the media have looked at pandemics. They just haven't applied a, an imaginative enough perspective on it. So you could say they have missed so much. And that's one of the reasons that I actually argue that this was not a pandemic that was kind of a, a crisis foretold. We, we really didn't have a clear sense of how the world, you know, would be so simultaneously impacted by this, um, you know, despite having had previous influenza pandemics and, you know, and even some exercises looking into thinking what might happen if, you know, if this and that happened and if this and that virus, you know, uh, came out. 
we really didn't understand, did we? You know, what was going to change in 100 days. Right. So that leads into the next term I want to hit on, and that's futurist. And we kind of, I guess, kind of touched on it. But can you clarify that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I find it, it's a funny word, right? Because futurist, what does it mean? I mean, no one obviously knows the future. I try to stay away from thinking that I predict the future. And, and most futurists have kind of moved away from that. We talk more in terms of scenarios. We talk about possible futures. We don't imply that we know the future. I mean, you know, we're not soothsayers or anything. We don't have a, a view direct to the future. But it does mean that I look, look at a world through the lens of decades, not days or minutes. Mm. So it makes me very different from today's kind of TikTok uh, teenagers. Yeah. And I mean, even for just adults, it's it's really hard to think outside of, you know, the moment that's right in front of you. Um, I know growing up, you know, my, my parents were always like, hey, you need to think about how this decision is going to affect you two weeks from now, Michael, how this is going to affect you a year from now, Michael. You know, I almost call that wisdom, but uh, futurist, that's a great word. I love that. I'm going to throw that in my vocabulary for sure. You, you should. It's, it's a cool word. And, and I think it's important. It's just that, you know, you can't um, you can't really imply that, that you know the future. The, no, no one does. And, and as this has shown, I think, you know, we really don't know the future. But but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about it. Right. I agree. There was one more term I wanted to touch on before we go into the end of the book, and that's um, forces of disruption. Sounds awesome. Again, another term that just sounds awesome. But what is forces of disruption? Uh, the forces of disruption is basically what I feel is drives our reality. Um, there's four or five main ones, science and technology being a very important force, policy and regulation, um, you know, often thought of as something that just is an afterthought to these uh, scientific developments, but it's actually far, far from the truth. Third one is business models and kind of business dynamics, which, uh, you know, used to be something only uh, business school professors thought about. But these days, you know, as we said about Facebook, a, a business can be, you know, brought uh, brought up and running in, in, you know, in no time if you have the right sort of creative take on how you're going to basically earn money on something. And then there are so many ways to do that. And, and it's changing so fast. And then lastly, social dynamics, which, you know, is context of uh, use and consumers and and you know we we all also shape that um very much and, and and lastly perhaps this environmental context which really obviously comes in in a gripping way with the pandemic because you know it, they call it a zoonotic disease right if it's a virus that really transfers from animals to humans wow. so it really comes from nature and um so those are you know the most important perspectives, I think, in order to understand the future. So what a futurist then does is just throws those four or five forces into the mix and projects what might happen in different combinations of those. And that's the future. Okay. Yeah. So like variables, how these different variables are affecting whatever uh, reality is presently. Yes. Okay. I get it. Great. I think I'm ready to um, just dive right into this book. And, and the first thing I want to talk about is the cover of your book. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it's it's a cool cover. It's captivating. I look at it and I'm like, interesting. I'm definitely, if I see this on a library or in a store, um, it's it's going to make my eyes take a second look. Yeah. So I hope it's not just the cover that makes people like it. Although, you know, I'm extremely thrilled that we're moving up the Amazon bestseller ranks, both on Kindle and paperback. And, you know, for sure, the cover is is part of that, um, and so I, you know, I'm happy to tell you about the cover too. Um, 
Mona Lisa, of course, is a misunderstood figure historically, but there's a recent story about a, a doctor here in, in uh, the Boston area, actually, who thinks that she might have suffered from a disease called hypothyroidism. But anyway, you know, she has a mysterious smile. So adding the mask, I think, has a little become a little bit of an Internet meme. So we wanted to build on that because, you know, a mysterious woman that was depicted in the, you know, by Leonardo da Vinci. And then, you know, now potentially wearing a mask is, is kind of just um, for me, it brought back the fact that, you know, the Black Death is actually, um you know, shows up before the Renaissance, which was a very creative period of human history. So I think we're we're actually trying to draw the line all the way back to saying, you know, in the midst of 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 real chaos, can something positive and very creative be born out of that? And and that ties into this aftermath idea, which uh, you didn't comment on that, but on the bottom, there's actually grass yes, coming up. Yes. And, uh, Aftermath is actually kind of the aftergrowth. So once you cut the grass the first time, there is some aftergrowth. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some promise in that, right? That you can actually uh, potentially also use that aftermath and obviously whatever comes after. So the idea is there could be a creative and positive outcome even of uh, disaster. Absolutely. That's good. I like that. So yeah, this, this book is definitely going to catch attention. It caught my attention and I'm looking at your website. I see this cover and it sparks my interest. And then I'm looking at, you've got some real high praise for this book. The U.S. Review of Books says the informative narrative is well-rounded and well-researched and the conversational style is easily understood despite the technical jargon of the academic discourse. When I'm reading nonfiction, I want a conversational tone. So I'm loving that review. And then um, the Midwest Book Review says essential reading for anyone concerned about what the world will look like in the pandemic aftermath and how to operate in today's environment and survive it. And then here's a, a doctor from Harvard Medical School, a riveting account of the scenarios facing the post-corona society. I'm amazed at the way Tron Undum combines a deep dive into our dystopian reality with optimism if action is taken. High praise. Yeah, I'm extremely excited about that. And, the, uh, you know, the the last one I think we were talking about before was uh, from from uh, John Hargrave, who says, you know, that the book builds the future even as it's predicting it. And I feel, you know, yes. it's great to get that kind of uh, statement from experts, but I, I would be now much or even more interested, I should say, in getting, you know, perspectives from, from you know, readers from all walks of, of life. You know, I wrote this book, and, you know, as we're getting into the content, one of my big messages really is that experts have said enough about this pandemic. This is not going to be resolved by experts. It's one of those crises mm -hmm. where you can have any number of perfect answers, you know, on paper to, to what's happening right now. But what's going to decide whether we go into a positive decade where we control these scenarios or we go into a very dystopian future? That's really citizens on the ground, uh, engaging, trying to understand what's happening and making real choices, because there are some brave choices waiting to be made, not just perhaps about this pandemic, but about any of the follow on events that we are surely looking at, whether they be, you know, disasters that now will be bigger disasters because we have two disasters to deal with. It could be famines, you know, it's... Uh, Famines and um, even, you know, grasshopper infection across Africa. It could be 
terrorism. It could be anything that's compounded and accelerated basically by by this kind of pandemic. So we need a bold response and it cannot just be leadership that provides that response. Yeah, we need grassroots movements, people in small communities, people in big communities. But, you know, within our individual scope of influence, um, we just need positive attitudes. We need to approach this as, you know, we're people and we're people together. Well, I think more than anything, we need patience because this has been a trying Mm. hundred days and now more than that. And I think all all of us need patience because understandably for some people, this is so disruptive. For others, you know, it is actually an opportunity. You know, many elites who operate businesses that have been able to turn around or just have capital or resources to, you know, just swing things around. For them, it's massive opportunity. Any crisis can be an opportunity. But for so many people, it is Mm -hmm. the radical opposite. And we have to be patient with that, you know, whether they're demonstrating in the streets, which I think we will see more of for, you know, for good reasons and for bad reasons, uh, or uh, they're basically taking no action, they're just sitting back and hoping that governments or someone is going to kind of uh, yeah. help them out. There's just not help for everyone right now. Uh, you know, it's an overload of uh, of issues that need to be taken care of. So, so we need to take care of each other. Absolutely, that's good. That's really good. That leads us right into the actual content of your book. You had said the first half of your book is is nonfiction, while the second half is fictional scenarios, plausible scenarios um, based on this nonfiction information. So, could you kind of give us a a quick glimpse at what that first section is like? Yeah, I made the choice to make this sort of a hybrid book, a very unusual choice. But the reason is, you know, I felt like I could write a full nonfiction book about the pandemic, but it's so early days that much of the things in the early days will change. On the other hand, you know, I did a close reading with a very sort of intimate timeline of, of the first three months. And, and what happened in the first three months, unfortunately for, for us, you know, was pretty epic and, and, and you know, in, not necessarily in a good way, but it's going to go into the history books as, you know, there really were some decisions made and, and some things happened there that, that are shaping this decade and, and I think more than this decade. Mm-hmm. So it's a close reading of all those things, sort of uh, looking at the world together from the crisis initiating in China, what various governments did to try to quell it and also some of the governments under communicated what was actually happening and i try to go into some of the reasons what you know why that happened but really it's not for evaluation's sake it's for context because what i want to set up is you can't really imagine that the world is changing so much unless you know what has happened in 100 days and really just take a look at all of the things that have gone down. It's not just death tolls. It is all the individual sort of destinies and all the particular little things mm. that we're now talking about as if it's vocabulary we've always had, you know, the social distancing issues, <laughs> uh, the fact that everybody now has an opinion about vaccines <laughs> and um, a lot of other public health issues that suddenly has become on everybody's tongue and we're all talking about it. Right. And the other, maybe, maybe lastly, you know, what I did go through in that first part, which is important part of the, of the setup, I went through some 15 government uh, scenario exercises around pandemics. And I really did a close reading of to what extent these exercises prepared us 
for you know what was to happen and you know some of them uh you know the most active countries were the uk and the us where there were many scenario exercises uh, carried out uh, in the us um there's been uh, a bunch i could you know name some of them dark winter back in 2001 then there was a famous one called Cladex, and then another one called Event 201, and then lastly, something called Crimson Contagion. The problem with all of these exercises is that they involved something like 15, 20 people every time, and they were, you know, inadvertently government experts or academics or, you know, occasionally some business professionals. But, you know, it's just impossible to report back on, on those things, and they, you, can't risk, you can't simulate a whole world going to pieces with 15 people in the room. It's just not possible. See, I've never, I never heard of any of this. So these, these were actually exercises like, okay, if this happens, here's how we're going to respond. And they actually kind of did, did walkthroughs of these. Oh yeah. Most of them were not even just desk exercises. They were, um, they were full fledged, uh, or they were supposed to be, they were made to be full fledged scenarios where people got involved over hours, in some cases over days and, and months, and uh, looked into various aspects of, of, of uh, you know, a pandemic scenario. The challenge is most of them was about a influenza scenario, which, which is unhelpful because we know, we know that influenza is terrible and, and it is still a threat. And there's, you know, uh, pandemic preparedness for influenza is not over. We, we still need to have it. The problem was, you know, when you put that into the scenarios, it's not very imaginative. And also mm -hmm. these scenarios, inadvertently, they stop short of really looking at the public reaction, which is, you know, my social dynamics and my business dynamics. They really just focus on, you know, what is the government going to do with the fact that, you know, X number of people got infected and started flying on airplanes. They don't really think it through. Okay. So a lot of those forces of disruption, they don't, they don't even touch on. No, they don't. Okay. Wow. So, so you're, you're building this all up. You're taking what's happening now, what's happened in the last hundred days. Uh, you're taking scenarios that governments have run, um, their plans of action, I guess. And, and you've built this all up and, and then it moves into the second half, and that's that fictional uh, possible scenarios, very likely scenarios based on what has happened in the last 100 days, correct? Yeah, and, you know, it was strange because, as I said, a futurist, you know, it's not like we're, uh, we see the future. But in this particular case, I mean, I have these scenarios written up here on my, uh, on my erasable wall behind me, and, you know, at some point in... I think it was early February, possibly, I, I wrote those down and I, I kind of knocked them out very quickly. And I thought to myself, this really summarizes everything that I know about what's happening in the world generally and this particular situation. And the five scenarios that I've chosen to, to look at are, they're not all bad, they're mixed. And, you know, if you know anything about scenario building, the, the, the great thing with great scenarios is that you basically you have these alternative futures and they're all kind of interesting. They're all, they all have positive and negative aspects. There are some dependencies within them, but you know, when you look at them and study them, the point is, yeah, there could be aspects of this or the, the other that actually is going to turn out. But the point is to decide, you know, what do we want to encourage? Which leads us to the first scenario in your book, Borderless World. 
borderless world. And I imagine this expert-led world um, basically becoming a federal state where the world decides, you know, we are going to implement this globalization thing for the for real. And we're going to fix the world's health systems. We're not going to have a hundred countries with such poor health systems that they're a threat to everyone else and themselves. We're going to actually do this right. Yeah. Uh, the problem in this scenario, as I line it up, is that it's a little bit of a synthetic world, right? Mm. Where sure. nature, where the elderly, uh, you know, they just become kind of parentheses. It's a very you could say hygienically focused world. And, and really it's a sad world because a lot of emotion and, and a lot of the things we appreciate about our society is gonna be lost if that's the path we take. On the other hand, you know, it is every liberal's dream, I guess, to, to kind of build a global <laughs> society. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it appeals to the instincts of, of a lot of people on the conservative side as well. It could be a very profitable world. So that's the first scenario, borderless world. Okay, cool, cool. You know, and, and, I, and just having discussions or overhearing discussions in the last few months, you know, that's something that I've heard come up too is like, oh, I wonder if this could happen. So yeah, that's cool that you're touching on this. And, and I really like how you're taking into account that Hey, people, this isn't black and white. You know, it's not going to be this way or this way. It's just here's some possibilities. Um, here's what hopefully we we pick some things to encourage out of these. But that's cool. That's reality. Reality is good and bad together. Hopefully, you know, we just make those right choices like you're talking about. Yeah. So you want to hear about scenario two? Absolutely. Keep it coming. Yeah. Right. So in in two, I call it nation state renewal because, you know, if you think about it, nation states are really powerful. They haven't been around forever. In fact, you know, the, they're just a couple of hundred years old as a, as a system. But um, in this situation with a lot of, uh, you know, challenges, having an efficient and existing system and just making that more efficient and, and the fact that we, you know, have built up a lot of national pride over the centuries in, in, in every country, right? You know, we have the Olympics mm. uh, and, and we are proud of, uh, you know, whether, you know, in my case being Norwegian, but now possibly also being American, right? We have very big national pride based on where we live over long periods of time. Yes. I mean, even even within countries, I know like, you know, I'm, I'm over here in Wyoming and uh, there's a lot of pride in Wyoming. I have friends in, in Washington and Iowa and Illinois. I mean, there's there's just local pride everywhere you go. You even go into high school. I mean, just look at high school athletics, you know, there's definitely pride everywhere. Oh, yeah. And, and that's a great point, because nation state renewal is actually also about regional renewal, because um, and this ties into several of the scenarios. But, you know, wh whichever you choose, local uh, pride is actually going to grow no matter how you do it. You know, it's just a question of w which level do you, are you going to double down on? Mm. But nation state, you know, it's an interesting level. It exists. It's very strong. But the local level is never going to go away. And, you know, the proximity factor is super important. That's that's, you know, those are the people we really trust uh, or, or mistrust in a really aggressive way. But, you know, when you're physically close to someone, that's when you really discover uh, who you like and who you don't. Yeah, But anyway, in this nation state renewal, the idea is, this is where I see an aspect that I think is maybe coming in every scenario, but this decade of what I call intermittency, which I, deserves an explanation, but you could say cycles of society opening up, closing down, 
um, repeatedly, you know, and the physical distancing that's going to be needed in this scenario throughout the decade. But, you know, obviously in various ways, you have to have an economy running. So you open up as mo- much as you can, uh, as safely as you can. And then when there's an outbreak, you, you, you know, you close it down again. And in this scenario, it's not a rosy scenario where all the nations are thriving all the time. It's a really tough job, but they have found this organizational principle in, in the nation states and people are kind of tired of this global, you know, whether it's the UN, WHO level, which, you know, is kind of spending money and you'd never know what you're getting. And yeah. there's no legitimacy really uh, yet at the global level. It's just an experimental organization we've had around for quite a few years. So what I point out there is, you know, some countries will thrive. And in my scenario here, actually, it's China and Scandinavia plus Germany and some smaller Asian countries that thrive. And uh, some of the formerly great nations like, um, unfortunately, the U.S. and the U.K., uh, whether it's Russia, Brazil or India, may struggle in, in, in such a scenario. Oh my gosh, I want to I want you to answer me why so bad, but you know, uh that's going to be something I'm going to have to read in the book, but that is I want to know. Yeah. So let's keep what's two worlds apart? What's that scenario? That's the third one, correct? That's the third one, and I'm thinking this is happening and has been happening to some degree already, right? So you don't need a failed vaccine, which I have introduced in this scenario to see this. But let's now throw in there that the vaccine doesn't work, which unfortunately is possible, right? What I then see happening is it could be that the elite just simply says, you know what, we have tried to live in our compounds and, you know, go to our vacation spots and, but it's not working for us because our service staff and all of our businesses, they are still in this contagion and, you know, all our money is not getting uh, us out of this. So we mm-hmm. need to create a whole new physically distant walled off district that where we only exist and we can control contagion. Now that is going to be expensive. So I'm foreseeing basically what I kind of call clean world and dirty world. And it, um, I'm not going to reveal the whole scenario, but there's a whole um, movement of billionaires that basically build this uh, real estate paradise with uh, sort of timeshares for the extreme elite at a hundred um, million dollar buy-in, and then the rest of the world basically lives in a world that's not as ideal as that and kind of gets exploited. But but there's an upside to everything because it's such a big population that you know, there's obviously m- many many differences within this category of people that don't fit, uh, you know, in this elite world. And and there's also a question, you know, how fun would it be inside of that world of billionaires? Right. You know, is that a life? Right. So it sounds ideal for the billionaires, but maybe it isn't. And that's the real question I'm trying to ask. Okay. This just makes me think, have you seen that movie um, by Bruce Willis, Surrogates? Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Okay. It was maybe around 2009, 2010. It was, um, so everybody, well, I should say wealthy people, they just stay in their homes and they have basically robots that they plug into. And so the humans stay home, but they're robots, they're surrogates, go out, they do their jobs, they do everything for them. It's an interesting sci-fi movie, but that's right where my mind went to as you were talking about this. That's great. I, I'm not going to watch that. So that's uh, I have my evening set up for me now. Great. 
So then after two worlds apart, we go to the fourth scenario, and that's the Hobbesian chaos. Yeah, uh, Hobbesian or Hobbesian chaos. So that refers back to Thomas Hobbes. You, you know, I said I had studied philosophy, mm-hmm. but, you know, he was the philosopher of, of the state of nature, right? He was describing how, you know, he was trying to explain how civilization came about, really. That's, that's what he was all about trying to explain. And he said, well, at some point early on, there were no laws and we had to invent them. And why did we do that? Well, because people wanted protection. So the point with this chaotic world is that in a scenario where vaccines fails, no state really lasts beyond a year where rule of law starts to cease to exist and terrorist groups, you know, start taking over regionally you know, whether it's Boko Haram in Nigeria and increasingly kind of all of West and Southern Africa or the mafia, you know, out of mm. uh, Italy, but increasingly all around the world or Al-Qaeda or, you know, other other groups. Basically, I'm just envisioning that there is a strong chance that this kind of unrest will foment further unrest. And if it can't be quelled by positive forces, you know, it could be a self-reinforcing vehicle where the fight for scarce resources, uh, you know, will end up in an earth with constant struggle and no real forces really can control the entire planet. Mm. So that is the real dystopia. Yeah, that's that's like Mad Max dystopia. It is a little bit, but you'd be surprised because, you know, I have these vignettes inside of there and I worked really hard on those people that are living inside of these scenarios because remember i was so critical of other scenario Mm. building that i had to make these believable and i found a way to make the people living in that scenario somewhat happy as well cool so you 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 know you can't discount the outside world but on the other hand as i think i don't know with you i'm curious to hear you know, have you still laughed? Have you had fun in these last hundred, you know, 150 days or has it just been terrible? Okay. So I'm in Wyoming. Um, and Wyoming, I want to say as of Friday, somewhere around there, as of the end of last week, there's been, I think 12 deaths from COVID-19 in our state. And, um, at the same time, there'd been 30 deaths from car accidents, at least in my small town. And I'm in a real small town in a real small County in Wyoming. Life hasn't changed too much. I mean, you had some restaurants shut down, you know, people are being a little more prudent, washing hands more. Um, some people wear masks, some people don't, but again, we we're in the wilderness here. This is cow country. And so, um, a lot of at least what my family and I are doing is, you know, we're going on hikes, we're going to the lake. Life hasn't changed a lot for us. And I'm so glad to hear that. And and I'm not going to take that away from you, but I will say this. Uh, the reason I asked you the question was, you know, I think that, you know, whatever happens, and this has been true, you know, my grandmother, you know, she was living uh, in Norway when the Germans invaded and they invaded her house and in fact stayed in her house for five years. They were still laughing and they're still laughing about it now. Like there's a good, there's a silver thread to everything and there's a way to survive was my point. Mm. But really what you now remind me of is the fact that there are so many places in the world where the movement, uh, uh, you know, the whole shift hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Norway, actually, where I, you know, I relate a lot back because I haven't been back there, obviously. But, you know, they have less than 200 deaths, I believe, and, and really have controlled this virus. So they think, yet their neighboring country, you know, say, sort of same size, 
has an enormous death toll, Sweden, because they, they chose a different strategy and, and it kind of backfired on them. They tried this contemporary approach to the pandemic where they didn't lock down society wow. and they have had thousands wow. of deaths. But the problem is, you know, what do you do now? Do you, do you stop? Because there's been a temporary, you know, halt of trade between those two countries, which for centuries and centuries have had enormous contact between each other. Mm. Is that going to happen to Wyoming? I don't know. I mean, I think the good thing is, as long as you can isolate a state from a virus, that's, you know, things might happen. Maybe there is a vaccine. Maybe this virus, you know, somehow morphs or becomes weaker or, or dies out. And, you know, you can think of everything. But on the other hand, right, you're, you are just slower to get it than other places. You're not living completely isolated. No. So, so that's my point. And, you know, many of these scenarios po point that out, that you, you can, for, for long, you can sort of assume that you're completely uh, cut off from this. But as we've seen in Brazil, as we're now seeing all across Latin America and, and South America, definitely in Russia, um, and, and we're not really seeing it as much all across Africa. But, you know, once the reporting starts to come out of Africa, it's going to be really, really grim because these places may be isolated. But the moment they get it, it's sort of like an island. You know, if you think about New Zealand, they have been touted as having fantastic response to this crisis. And, and, and they have, and, and maybe they will. Okay. But it comes at a great cost because they have consciously isolated themselves. You in Wyoming might not be as connected to the rest of the U.S., you know, and you might be happy you know, with that. But the problem is when isolated places get this disease... It is horrendous. Okay. I studied one statistic uh, about medical deserts in the U.S., and some 250 hospitals have closed in rural America over the last decade. Now, where are people going to go if this disease comes there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's terrible. Definitely some things to think about. And um, again, I just, I mean, the more I talk to you and hear from you, the more I'm, I'm, I'm really compelled to, I'll be reading this book. This is good stuff. If nothing else, it's going to really help me mentally prepare for, you know, possible scenarios. You know, that's cool. I'm glad to hear that. So let's round it off with a more positive scenario. So I call it status quo. And, you know, that sort of just refers to things like, you know, um, it's going to be more of the same. And, you know, this is the scenario we all hope for in many ways, right? The vaccine works. It's rolled out relatively quickly. In fact, you know, uh, astonishingly quickly compared to the average. Um, and the world is still what I call kind of a tripolar order. The U.S., China, and Russia rule in each uh, hemisphere, and uh, each of them think that they rule the world. You know, that's the, that's the way it goes. And after a period of, you know, slight readjustment, society and the world economy, mm. you know, in most dimensions, that it won't be significantly altered by this sort of pandemic experience. Uh, although a few things do change, uh, and I, I throw in there kind of remote work be, becoming a real thing, other things that others are, are sort of stating as a matter of course, I happen to actually be quite critical of that. You know, my, my PhD you know, was uh, largely on the future of work, and I think remote work isn't as simple as people are saying. I think for, you know, for the service workers, there isn't a way to really be remote. For many who are making real decisions or trying to pitch their work, if you're trying to present an idea to your boss, I, if you have the chance, you should go in and see your boss okay. because you have so many more opportunities to influence uh, you know, him or her with that idea. So the idea here that the modern knowledge workplace, which 
really is very intense and you are trying to get real creative things done to assume that all of that's going to be remote. I mean, I think that's ridiculous, but some things will, and some things won't change. And I am envisioning that there is this fifth way out here where we will get this thing under control. And that's what that scenario is, is about. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a fantastic place to be because, you know, then we've kind of missed the opportunity of the crisis to, to really make real changes here. So if you are unhappy with how the world is right now, this scenario may not be your cup of cake, you know, your uh, cup of tea either. Well, this is, I mean, this is great. This is fascinating stuff, stimulating. It's thought provoking. It really is, Tron. I really appreciate having you on here today. Thank you. And um, before we... Before we tie it up, I'd just like to know um, what's going on in your life now. Well, as many people, I've been locked, you know, into my house. But one of the things that that has led to is a little bit of a kind of a creative renaissance just for me. I've started writing even more and I uh, always wanted to write. I've written two books this year or at least finalized one and then written another. I wrote a book uh, previously this uh, this year called Disruption Games, and it's about uh, how to learn from failure. It's about startups and, and my experience at MIT working with uh, thousands of, of startups there. So that's that was exciting. Uh, and I'm really now almost kind of reconceptualizing my life, and I'm trying to make my life as an author. I mean, I think I'll do other things, and I have my startup that I'm still working on. But, you know, a lot of that has become quite difficult, and it's not super easy always to to capture all the value of, of a pandemic. So I've also had to rethink a lot of things. And one of the things is I'm really excited about writing and how that uh, lets me express thoughts that I have in a much more free way than you can really inside of a workplace when you are, have all these constraints to try to bring your ideas to light. You know, uh, being an author, it opens up a lot of possibilities. And uh, so I'm working on a children's book. I'm working on a uh, kind of a series on a historical sort of magical realism, big project uh, about kind of a mythical civilization. Awesome. Yeah, I'm working on a lot of things. And I'm, you know, the, the challenge is, of course, can you make a living this way? And I will tell you, it's really hard to make your living as an author, which is one of the reasons I'm so thrilled that this book seems to be resonating. Because to, to really survive as an author, you depend on your readers, you depend on your friends, as it turns out, to help you promote and, and help you, give you opportunities. And, you know, it's not like a regular job. You know, you just can't expect a paycheck. You, you really just have to resonate with readers. You have to keep impressing. You have to be really creative. And, you know, the competition is stellar. There are many, many books issued every year. And to, to really become widely read and sustain that book after book, I think that would be a dream. But um, it seems like something well worth you know, trying to do. Well, Tron, uh, I wish you well. I'm just talking to you. I think, you know, if anyone can do it, you can. You seem like a go-getter. And uh, not only that, but you're a hero. <laughs> you know, you can do this. This is going to be cool. I'm going to be... Uh, I'm going to be buying some of your stuff on Amazon. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely, Tron. You take care. Oh, thank you. And thanks for having me on the show. Wow. What a guy. That was interesting. I hope you got as much enjoyment out of it as I did. And thank you again for tuning into my life now. Have a good night. 
Thank you for listening and supporting another episode of My Life Now. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast show and share it with a friend. Together, we can keep the message of these books alive. Until we turn the next page together, stay classy. Thank you.